Welcome to another episode and today it's me, myself and I and that's very unusual. I love doing podcasts. If it was for me, I would do them every day, hearing all the stories, sharing, you know, learning new things and hearing about experiences. It's always really fun. It really helps me think and also see things from a different angle, hear different words. It's really, really enriching to my life. So talking about you know, one of my favorite sentences from a wonderful seminar in 2016 in Romania was, have you enriched a life today? Well, certainly when I do podcasts, it's always super enriching. And I hope also, you know, to uh, continue these podcasts for a very long time. So today's podcast has a whole bunch of different stories in the sense that uh, one of the things that has kept me busy lately thinking about like really holding space for it and sitting with it has been you know the awareness of something that seems extremely obvious but like one life everybody has one life i have one life you have one life your cat or your dog if you have one has one life the gorilla in the forest and the family they all have one life And so also all the animals in our care or in human care in general. And so sitting with this really, you know, spending time, you know, when I, when I walk or driving in the car, or of course, luckily now we are recording, it's the 19th of March, uh, 2022. And for the first time in two years time, I'm back working on location in a zoo in France, and it's absolutely wonderful. I'm really enjoying myself being with people, and of course, you know, with all the lovely animals. And it's really, you know, wonderful to think about, okay, so one life, and really bringing awareness to that and sitting with it and going, okay, so for this one gibbon here, or these two gibbons, what is their life like, right? And we all, you know, talk about how important it is to, of course, and, and we put a lot of effort into caring for the animals in our care. And then what does that look like? What does that look like for the animals? You know, what is their one life like? And of course, when we have a lot to do and very, very busy, or when we go home and, you know, everybody's like, oh no, is she getting on that soapbox again? Yes, I am. So there's so many, many, many hours in the day that we are not on location. And that's, of course, also true for the horse in the stable or maybe dogs in a shelter. It's not just in zoos and aquariums, but there's lots of different places where, of course, animals are waiting for environmental enrichment or for, you know, their food or interacting with others or looking forward to seeing you. There's just so many different things that animals are relying upon. And so when we're thinking about, you know, maybe you haven't seen this webinar yet, we'll have a link with this podcast. But last year we were invited for EASA to 
do an animal welfare work uh, webinar and this was with John Cole, wonderful landscape architect and uh, designer who creates lots of different spaces for animals. And we are working also on a peer-reviewed publication, which is all about the back of house. So when you're thinking about every animal has one life and it's their, his or her life to live, then how do we really make sure this is the best life that they can have, right? In the back of house, in all the hours that we are not there. And of course, also in the time that we are there. And so it really also comes to this whole concept of of habitat management, you know, and really understanding in what way can we make the environment as much as possible in, in a almost functioning in a semi-autonomous manner so that animals have a wide variety of complexity. They can make their choices. They can have control over some of their choices. They can have control over what happens to them, just like when we interact and train animals for you know, all kinds of participatory behaviors in their daily care or with their visitors, you know, but what, when we're really deeply thinking about what is that, what is that life like? What is it for you to be living where you live and living with the others that you live with? Uh, what is it like to interact with the visitors for you? What is it like to be with us as uh, animal care staff, you know, Sometimes it's about really looking into the details and to looking at, of course, an, an animal's whole day and night and, and all the days and all the months and all the years that animal may spend in our care or moving to another facility. But really just sitting with that, right? That wonderful, of course, responsibility and responsibility, our ability to respond to whatever it is that the animals may need or prefer and the opportunity that you have to make a difference in an animal's life, right? So one of the animals right now that also comes to mind is a dog. Like I'm living here in an apartment in France and there's a dog in a neighbor's garden. And since I've been here, this dog is often in the garden and there's nobody home and he paces. You know, he's just pacing all around the yard. And sometimes, you know, when I stop and I talk to the dog and, you know, there is some interaction, he's still attentive, he's looking around. But I can also see him from, from my balcony and, and he does a lot of pacing. And, you know, very rarely do I see humans. And so, again, you know, it's not just about animals in zoos or in labs or farms, but it's also the animals maybe next door, right? And the other day I had an opportunity to briefly speak to the owner and the owner said, I don't know what to do, but when I leave the dog in the house, you know, it's, it's a mess. So together we have decided that we're going to try and find somebody like I am not a dog person. So that's another really important aspect, right? Like where are your strengths? Where are your talents? What do you know really well? Uh, what are you good at? And then also what are you know, what are other people very good at? And luckily I have a lot of wonderful dog, you know, experts and friends in my network. So, you know, the owner doesn't know what to do anymore. And uh, she said, you know, I, I'll just have to um, put him in the garden because otherwise, you know, the house is a complete mess. 
And so together we are going to look for a solution and find a dog expert here, a positive reinforcement dog trainer, behavior, uh, somebody looking at, at dog well-being holistically and, and hopefully finding a solution. And that always takes me also to, you know, this aspect of bringing lots of patience and kindness because, of course, you know, I feel sad or I feel frustrated or I feel, you know, bad that the dog is living in this situation. But I don't know anything about the people in the house. I I, I never met them. And sometimes we also don't know what may be going on and, and how long something has been going on. So having that small opportunity to briefly talk and then hopefully finding a solution to the dog. And it's all these small things that when you are in your environment, wherever you are, it's looking at, you know, what is it, what is the difference that I could be making for that one animal, right? Or that could be for that one tree or that river or that beach or that human being um, that might need help, right? And it's those sorts of things when, when we stop and think about one life or one, you know, moment, what is it that we can do to make a difference? And, you know, I had to also think about just recently I came uh, nearby, there's a big store, it's a bio store. And it actually, if you translate it uh, from the French, it, they, the French use militant, uh, which is militant, which is almost uh, a bit of a, you know, strong word, but I actually liked it. They use it in their description and uh, because they want to make, you know, the point about, you know, being really strong and making a difference for the environment. And in that store, they have all these huge containers with, you know, rice and tea and, and you know, all kinds of um, food that is, uh, a lot of it is produced here in France and some of it, of course, is imported. But you can come with your own containers and you can fill them and, uh, you know, there's a lot less, le lot less plastic in this store. So there's really a lot of, you know, wonderful activities that are happening and and i think that is also so strong right this whole action based you know here locally and thinking what is it that you can make a difference by how you shop or where you buy and those are some of the, the reoccurring aspects that uh, you might have heard in other podcasts but it's uh, so super important to see where can i make a difference uh, not just in my life but in the life of others and this also then reminds me because so now this podcast is probably going to go in lots of different places because my brain, you know, just uh, brings up one story after another. And uh, it reminds me of one of the animals in the zoo. And uh, we had uh, the idea, they, they were snowy owls, and we had the idea to uh, perhaps uh, open up some areas that are, the animals are usually not uh, using and uh, creating some more visual you know, spaces for them so they could look out. And, you know, one of the care staff did that. He removed a few different pieces from the environment to create larger, more see-through spaces. And now the snowy owls are using their environment completely different again. They're spending a lot of time at height and a lot of time looking out, which of course is not necessarily a surprise. But still, you know, all these small things that can make a difference for that animal, for that one life that they have, can, of course, you know, be the difference of, you know, having a okay life to now my life is actually a lot better. And so 
you know, whether it's uh, with another animal, you know, we had like a rooster and uh, just opening the door to another area and being able to move around and choosing where the animal wants to go. They're super simple things, but if you're caring for animals, think about what is it that you could be doing very simple things, making small modifications in the habitat that could offer the animals a different view, a different sun bathing spot, a different way to socialize with their companions. You know, it's really, there's a lot of different things that uh, you could be doing. And so what was interesting also when you have these sorts of conversations about what is it that we should be doing and how should we be doing it and how can we make changes for animals i was remembered of this master class that i once uh, did uh, online with the group metallica and metallica has of course you know four wonderful musicians uh, who are all very very good in their respective you know skills music making music writing and one of the lessons was about collaboration and you know them talking about how when they were younger they all had super strong egos and everybody knows was like we know best and this is what we should be doing and let's do this let's do that until they realized that really to make the best music, you know, to really do well together is to actually listen to each other and, you know, think about lots of different ways and different opinions and different, you know, pathways that you could go about it. And then, you know, what, you know, they were saying was that once all that is out, then we decide together what is the best, best way forward? What is the best method? What is the best you know, way for the project. And I always use, you know, that story because I think it's such a strong one that, you know, we often have a lot of different ideas, even different ideas of how to do research or, you know, what to do for the animals. But it actually allows us to think about, okay, let's just discuss a lot of different things. And then let's decide what is the best way, you know, to do this for the animal, you know, from the animal's perspective and not necessarily because it was my plan, but rather, you know, what is the best method? What is the best pathway forward to, you know, if you like make the best music, so make the best environment or make the environment at least better for animals. And so, and then also sticking to that plan so that when we decide that we're going to do something, we are actually, you know, coming together for a shared purpose. And so we all have to, you know, stick to that particular purpose, to that particular action points that we said we would do. So that, again, you know, there is that consistency, also a certain degree of predictability for the animals and, uh, and doing the same thing because we want to create the best music. And this is, of course, really important when we're thinking about, again, one life, about that one individual you know, how can we um, do that in the best way possible? And one of the other aspects that I think is always really interesting around this is the, the different language that we have around animals. So, of course, I mean, you have already heard we talk about he and she instead of it. We also, you know, at least one of the things that I find very interesting is what happens if we are removing like the abstract out of, you know, our relationship with animals. 
and abstract in the sense what I mean is that we have a lot of words. So for example, I get a Google alert for different scientific articles on all kinds of different topics. And then when those emails come in and you have all these different, you know, articles lined up under each other, I'm reading through them. And sometimes actually a lot of the times I'm reading them and thinking, I, I wonder if people who are not in our field, when they read this, are they thinking or are they realizing that we're talking about the natural world or that we are talking about living beings or sentient beings, animals that feel? Or, and that's not even true only for animal-related papers, but it's also related to human-related papers. So, but there is so much, so much language around, you know, the way that we write and talk about animals that sometimes it seems like we are not even talking about them. And so, and of course you see this also, for example, in the words that we use when we talk about different parts of animals, especially also in supermarkets and so on, but also in, in the zoo world, for example, we still use words like a collection, like a collection of animals, animal, you know, collection planning, we often say. And, uh, and those, that's an interesting, right? We have a collection of animals. These are real kind of old words also, like this sort of menagerie style, you know, stamp collections and, and those sorts of things. And we also use, for example, the word industry, our industry, um, or we talk about animal technicians. And so we have a whole bunch of different wording around, you know, animals that, that are, that is actually, you know, separating us in a way from them being living beings. And I'm really interested in, you know, how language shapes our brain, how it shapes our actions, how you know, with, with the words that we use. And, and not just only, you know, when I earlier talked about the back of house, you know, we talk about the bedroom. And then of course, when you say bed, you, you think sleeping or, you know, so, so when animal, when we're saying where animals are going into their bedrooms, are they actually going to sleep? No, a lot of animals are actually not going to sleep. They're actually waking up. But so, but our brain makes it think, you know, uh, it's sleeping time or it's resting time. And so that might mean that we are not as attentive as we could be with regards to what is it like to spend all those hours in that area where maybe there's not so much to do. And that's that one life, right? So it is really interesting for us to think about what sort of words are we using when we're talking about animals? So whether it's uh, the collection, the industry, and all these sorts of abstract words that detach us from who they are as living beings, as sentient beings, is a really important exercise, I think, for us. Even the word exercise is a, quite a, you know, sort of abstract word. But, you know, what, what happens if we hold space, if we sit with the fact that these are, you know, living beings? And this is why I always say, you know, animal well-being is an end in itself. It's a goal in itself for us. It's definitely a goal in the sense for the animals that they, they want to feel good. They don't really care about, you know, our lofty goals of conservation of species. You know, they didn't, you know, draft themselves another wonderful detached, detached word uh, to, to be in a zoo or to be in a rescue center or sanctuary, right? So, 
But what does it mean when we're thinking about all those aspects of an animal's life? And, uh, and really thinking also about how we interpret it, right? So, for example, we often talk about that it is kind of hard to do research science in zoos because we have so few numbers. And, and a lot of people have been very active in looking at, you know, how can we use statistics in different ways with different, you know, even lower numbers of animals. But if in animal well-being is about individuals, then it's very interesting. And actually, it's very important that we talk about the experience of that one polar bear or the experience of that one macaque. So, you know, of course, you know, there's a lot to say about, you know, the importance of looking at species level or across different individuals, but we cannot lose sight of if animal well-being pertains to the individual animal, then animal well-being research should also be able to report on just one individual and what is true for that individual as far as we can tell through you know the methods that we're using and so i think there's a lot in this space when we're thinking about the language and the way that we talk uh, about other animals and uh, not just in what words but also what sort of methods do we find acceptable and so for example in the medical sciences in in human sciences case studies also in veterinary science but it seems they're a little bit less. Maybe there's some bias there or some residue from the history of animal welfare science where we, you know, it was farm animals. It was many, many animals. But in human medicine, there is um, a, a very big interest in a bit and high acceptance also in, a, in their talking and discussing and writing about the one patient, if you like, uh, or the one resident as we often also call uh, animals in sanctuaries and zoos. And so, you know, like I was saying, I've been thinking about a lot of different things and also what, holding space for what is it like to be that one animal? And also in what way does, I think, ha animal welfare science has to change in the sense that we are really thinking and writing and reporting on what it means to be that one individual, that one individual who's living her or his life. And so it takes me to the end of this podcast with a small reflection on a concept that I've started to use for a few years now, which is about I see you. And it sprang from, you know, having worked in the animal field for 30 years and you know, the last 17 years traveling around the world with animal concept, of course, the last two years working online, but luckily we were able to continue a lot of the work, but seeing lots of lots of animals and lots of lots of people, right? And seeing is not just about, you know, I visually, visually see you, but it's also, I, I, I listen to you, I feel you, I want to pay attention to you, I want to connect to you. I want to bring compassion and empathy. I want to, of course, bring science, but I also want to bring gut feelings and common sense and, you know, all these different aspects. But so this, this concept, concept of I see you, especially also when things are really difficult or they're not very nice or, you know, it's easy to spend time with animals that like us, that want to hang out with us, that want to be close to us that are not afraid of us, that's, that is a, it's a lot of fun and it's really rewarding and it's, 
makes our hearts sing and it's beautiful, right? It's much harder to be with animals who don't want to be with us, who are afraid, who have, you know, bad, bad experiences, who are sad animals, who don't understand us, animals we don't understand or that, are, that we find hard to understand, to read body language wise, facial expressions, all those things, right? So, but this, again, this sort of staying with it and holding space and, and, and finding ways to keep seeing, right? In the broader sense with that, I mean, and, uh, and especially also when things are difficult and to keep seeing the individual because it matters to them, right? Animal welfare matters to that one individual. So in what ways can we keep seeing you know, that that one individual has a life and they want to live, you know, their life in the, to the best of their abilities, you know, with lots of agency, with lots of choices and control. And for us to, of course, facilitate that, to support that, uh, how do we, you know, have animals flourish uh, as much as possible in our care? And of course, also, how do we do that for wild animals and urban live wildlife and um and yeah bringing it back really to the one life and uh, i see you that you know that individual whether it's an animal or a human being but uh, spending time and uh, having lots of patience and loving kindness and uh, and talking about you know what does that mean and how can we collaborate with all the different expertise in the world that is there, how can we collaborate together for, you know, optimal flourishing animal well-being and of course also uh, the human animal. So these are some of my thoughts for you this week and uh, I will continue to do these podcasts a little bit by myself as well. I do prefer the ones where I'm actually talking to a real person but I'm really, really glad to be in your ear today and I hope you're well. I wish you a lovely day and to connect with you online sometime soon again. Mm -hmm.